We in the Christian world today have a whole lot of it's, I-T-S, a whole lot of it's, things about Christ that we major in, things about Christ that we build movements around, things about Christ that we even become obsessed with. But brothers and sisters, I don't need an it, and you don't need an it. I don't need a thing about Christ, and neither do you. I need a hymn. You need a hymn, and that's the Lord. What I hope to do this weekend is to give you a greater apprehension, a greater seeing of something we all have missed, and that is the absolute greatness of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and not just a doctrine or a theology about Him, but an experience that we can have as God's people. An experience of Him, not something about Him, but an experience of Him that's real, that's living, and that only communicates the glorious person that He is. I think this is really where we have slipped. We have centered on things about Christ and missed His fullness. And uh, I think as God's people, we, we do a pretty good job when it comes to salvation. I think we've honored Him well there. But beyond that, we haven't done very well, in my opinion. Okay, I want to um, read to you a passage of Scripture. And we're going to kind of take our stand here on this passage. Now, this is what I'm going to do this weekend. I'm going to read passages of Scripture to you. If you want to try to turn in your Bible to find it, that's fine. But I'm not going to wait till you get there. So you can always just jot down the reference and then go back and look at it. Uh, so we won't be distracted. But I want to read to you a passage that Paul of Tarsus wrote in the book of Ephesians. And it's found in Ephesians 3, verse 8. It goes like this. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to repeat that phrase. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The untraceable, the infathomable, the incomprehensible, the inexhaustible riches of Christ. And what I would like us to do this weekend is to embark on a journey into the unsearchable riches of Christ. Is anybody in the room interested in that besides me? Yeah. All right. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it by going back into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the richest picture that all of Scripture gives us when it comes to the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to make a statement here, and I want you to think about it. The Old Testament is God's picture book. You have a child and uh, he can't read, and so you, you give him picture books. 
Well, we're simple ones. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, we need pictures to understand how vast, how rich, how glorious He is. So God has given us the Old Testament, and it is His picture book. And I would like to read a few passages of Scripture, and I want you to listen to them because they tell us what the heart of the Old Testament is. Hebrews 10.1, the Old Testament law is only a shadow of the future things, not the realities themselves. The Old Testament law is a shadow, not the reality. Colossians 2.16.17, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Listen to this. These things are a shadow of things that are to come. The reality is found in Christ. Amen. They're a shadow. You know what a shadow is? It's an image of the real substance. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-11, Paul summarizes the history of Israel. He says, They, God's people in the Old Testament, were all baptized in Moses, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Amen. These things happened to them as examples or types and were written down for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. They're examples, they're pictures, they're types, they're shadows. Romans 15.4 For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament was a shadow. And the reality is Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about His unsearchable riches. There are, there have been, given to you and me as children of God, riches that are Christ, riches that are in Christ, that we can possess, that we can know, and that we can enjoy. If I can give you an example of what I think the whole Christian family, what their experience is right now when it comes to the riches of Jesus Christ, it's like a man who had received an inheritance from a distant relative that he did not know died. And what was placed in his bank account was $1 billion because this distant relative had inherited it to him. The problem is this man is very poor. He was never told that he had this inheritance. And he lived until he was 75 years old. He worked with, by the sweat of his brow. He died. He did not touch one penny because nobody told him he had it. So brothers and sisters, what I would like us to do this weekend is to get a peek as to what those riches are. And then talk a little bit practically about how we can possess and enjoy them. So let's look at our Lord. 
There is a picture in the Old Testament that is the highest and richest and greatest picture that shows us the unsearchable riches of Christ. And before we can look at it and really get a good glimpse of what it is, we got to go back before creation and spend some time there. So go with me before creation, before God said let, and let's look at what reality really is. Because before creation, we have reality. We have God, and in God we have His Son. And an obsession that God has. We have a passion in God's heart that provoked Him to create. But listen to me, all reality is before creation. God, in fact, is reality. His Son, who is in His bosom, is reality. And God begins to create. Now, here's something very, very arresting. God is an artist. He is the great artist. And creation is His masterpiece. Every artist, when an artist creates, whether it's paints a painting or he creates a sculpture. He puts within that artwork a reflection of his own passion, of his own obsession. He puts within that piece of art something of himself. This is true for every artist. Uh, I was reading about Vincent van Gogh not too long ago and I was astounded to learn about the man. All I had ever heard is that you know he went crazy, he got depressed, he killed himself, he cut his ear off, he drew a picture of it and that was it. Well this guy he's very fascinating. His father was a pastor and he had on his heart the coal miners in his town and he actually lived with them and his heart was to preach the gospel and bring the gospel to these peasants these workers who worked in the coal mines and in the fields for hours and hours and hours. And at age 27, as he began to preach to these people, he began to draw pictures of them. And he said, I want to capture the extreme sorrow that these people feel as they live day to day and try to pay their bills. I want to capture the sorrow that drives them. And later, he himself fell into great despair and could never recover from it and killed himself. But if you look at his artwork, you see his obsession in everything he paints. And you see something of himself. Well, God's no different. So consequently, when God created, he put in his creation a reflection of his magnificent obsession. Do you want to guess what that was? God the Father had a magnificent obsession, something he was utterly in love with and passionate about. His son, absolutely. So let's watch the Creator create. Let's go to creation and watch him put within creation pictures and shadows of his own son. Day one, light. Let there be light. That was not real light. That was a picture of he who said, I am the light of the world. Blinding, pure, incandescent, blazing light that drove out the darkness, day one. Day two, he created water, but he created two kinds of water. He created water above the heavens, 
which eventually would fall down upon the heavens and give it nourishment. And then he created the seas. Now, brothers and sisters, every chief thought of God that we find in Scripture, all of it, all of it appears in Genesis 1 and 2. It's all there in seed form. Salt water, the sea, always speaks of death. When demons were cast out, they're tossed into the sea. In the book of Revelation, the last chapters, the sea has the dead in it, and the sea shrinks and becomes a lake of fire. When Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. And Paul says that was their baptism. That's where they laid aside their dead carcass. Salt water, the Dead Sea, any, nothing lives in it because it's got salt in it. Salt water is a picture of death. But the water above, the water above, above the earth, falls to the earth and gives it life. That's the living water. Who's the living water? His son is the living water. But there's also death. The salt water. Now here's where we're going to camp this weekend. Day number three. Watch this. Something incredible happens on the third day. The salt water, the waters of death, recede back and out of it emerges something. The land. And immediately we have life coming up out of that land. We have plant life. The third day, life springing out of death. What happened to Christ on the third day? He arose again from the dead and He was a living spirit. This is the first sign of life. It's on the third day. And where does it appear? On the land. Where did the land come from? Out of the sea of death. Then day four, the scene shifts to the heavens. And God creates the sun. What a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. The sun with healing in his wings. Then the moon. Then the stars. And then on day five, he creates the birds. The dove being one of them. And the fish. And then on day six, he creates the land animals. The lamb is one of them. And then he creates man. Now, brothers and sisters, this whole creation, this masterpiece that God created, was but a reflection. You and I in this room have never seen the real sun. Amen, brother. That's a Kodak photo of the real sun. You've never seen a real dove. That's a picture of the real dove that existed before creation. You've never seen real water. It's a picture. You've never seen a real lamb. There was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's a picture. And you've never seen real land. This land that we walk on every single day it's a picture. And boy, what a picture it is. Let me tell you. It, 
is some picture of this land and what comes out of this land. Where did Adam come from? He came from the land. He came from the earth. In the Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, nor am I the son of one, so I may mispronounce this. I'll stand corrected if somebody correct the pronunciation, but I can tell you what it looks like. In the Hebrew, Adam is Adam. You know what the word for land is? Adama. He that comes out of the land. This can be scientifically demonstrated. If you were to take any human being and melt them down, you for instance, and put it in a test tube, and you looked at all the elements, and then you got some soil out here, and you put it in a test tube, do you know what would happen? You would find the exact same elements in your body, in your physical body, what makes you up and what makes this land up is the identical same thing. You have the same elements. Magnesium, zinc, calcium, whatever else is in you. We came out of the land. And do you know that man cannot survive without the land? Man needs the land to survive. He gets his food from the land. The minerals that make up his body, wherein he breathes every breath, comes out of the land. The water that he drinks to sustain his life comes out of the land. Man is utterly, desperately dependent on this land. And do you know that everything on the earth right now has come out of the land? Every shoe in this room came out of the land. Every shirt on every back came out of the land. This rug came out of the land. The paint came out of the land. This wonderful, whatever it's called, lectern, came out of the land. Every chair in this room came out of the land. Everything on earth came out of the land. Brothers and sisters, we, man, woman, are utterly, totally, completely dependent upon the land. I have a point. I have a point. <laughs> First the natural, then the spiritual. I just quoted Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ is the real land. And my brother and my sister, you and I as God's people were built to survive only by living off of Him. The land meets every need. So too, the Lord Jesus Christ meets every need that we have as God's people. Not that which is about Christ, but Christ Himself. He is the real land. And if you read your Old Testament from beginning to end, you will find the theme of the land appearing over and over and over again. In fact, when you hit the book of Genesis and you get to Abraham, you find that God gave to Abraham and all of his descendants a specific plot of land for them to live off of. And that land has a name and it's Canaan. And that is the richest picture of your Lord that Scripture presents to us. 
And we're going to spend the next few days looking at Canaan. Not the shadow and being content at looking at the shadow, but to peer past the shadow and see the reality. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the land of Canaan. Now, with that said, I want to read some scripture about the land. I want you just to listen to it to get an impression. Exodus 3.8 So I have come down to rescue my people from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 8, 7-9 For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good, spacious land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs following in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. You will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good and spacious land He has given you. Deuteronomy 11.11 But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. And then Deuteronomy 12.10-11 but you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And He will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for His name. There you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. The land of Canaan is a picture of the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His unsearchable riches. And if we look at the Christian family today, the body of Christ today, I will make an observation that God's people, by and large, have only grasped the Lord in one or two aspects. And those shadows give us those one or two aspects. I'll give you an example. The Baptists, praise the Lord. Most all Baptist people who have come up in that background know very well Jesus Christ as the Lamb. He's the Lamb. And if you're a good Baptist, you eat the Lamb Sunday morning, you eat the Lamb Sunday afternoon, you eat the Lamb Sunday night, you eat the Lamb Wednesday night. It's all the Lamb. Every Sunday morning you hear about the Lamb. And the Lamb is a beautiful and precious picture, isn't it? It's Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb, our salvation. But brothers and sisters, there is more to Christ than the Lamb. He's more than that. And when you become a believer for the first time, you can't get enough of the Lamb. But there comes a point where the Lamb is not sufficient. Now, if you're from a Pentecostal, charismatic background, you know Him as the Dove. The ministry of the Spirit. Beautiful thing. Beautiful. Needed. He's the Dove. But brothers and sisters, 
He's more than the dove. He is unlimited in who He is and in what He is. Now, I want to make an observation about the Lamb and these other things I've talked about. You go back to when God gave His promise to Abraham. He said, I'm giving you a land and you and your children will live off this land and you and your children, your descendants, will possess this land and the land will be everything to you. And Abraham got into the land, but you know what happened? He drifted off to Egypt. And eventually he had a son who had a son who had 12 sons. And they all drifted off to Egypt. And they spent 400 years there, outside the land. And then God brought Moses to the people to bring them out of Egypt. Now somebody in the room who's really bright here, and who's read the Bible once, at least, how did Israel get out of Egypt? Through the Red Sea. That's right, the Passover lamb. They ate the lamb which gave them strength for the journey to get out of Egypt. Point. When you got out of Egypt, you had to have Jesus Christ as the lamb. But that's what the lamb does. The lamb gives you strength to get out of Egypt. After that, they simply commemorated it. It was no longer necessary to have strength to live off the Lamb. The Lamb was to get them out of Egypt. Then they went into the wilderness, which was supposed to be only a, maybe a, a couple month journey, and it lasted 40 years, unfortunately. And God fed them with two things. Do you know what He fed them with? Somebody tell me. Manna that fell from heaven every day. We don't want to talk about the quail because that was a response to them getting tired of manna. And that didn't work out too well. But there was something else. Water out of the rock. Water out of the rock, brother. They had a rock that moved and accompanied them everywhere they went and it gave them water. Now there's a point here. Manna is necessary to get you through the wilderness. But do you know what happened to the manna the day they stepped into the land, it stopped. And did you know that Israel got tired of the manna? It was not sufficient. It was sufficient to get them through the wilderness, but not to live off of. Our spirits were dying for the riches of Jesus Christ that we knew existed but didn't know what they were or how to possess them. We knew inside that there's got to be more than this. I'm tired of the manna. And the lamb is great the first year or two that you're a Christian, but after a while, I need something else. Are you following what I'm saying to you? Well, brothers and sisters, there is a land that God has given His people. And God's people can live off that land every day, and it is inexhaustible. It's unlimited. You cannot wear it out. And the riches that are in the land, they're plentiful. They are all sufficient for every need that you have as a child of God. You and I were built to live off the land which is the all-sufficient Christ. And it is unlimited. 
and it's inexhaustible. And God has given us such a rich picture of who and what Christ is by showing us this land. It's a glorious thing to see. It's even more glorious to experience. Only the land is sufficient. When Joshua brought the people into the land, something interesting happened. The twelve tribes of Israel got together, one member from each tribe, and they cast lots to see which tribes would take which parts of the land. And the lot would fall to a certain part of the land, and that's the part that each tribe would take. So the lot would fall to Dan, and Dan would say, Well, this is the part of the land that me and my descendants have and my children have. This is the best part of the land. And then the lot would fall to Judah, and Judah would say, My goodness, no, Dan, I got the best part of the land. And then it would fall to Benjamin, and Benjamin would say, Well, no, I've got the best of all. It fell to the twelve tribes of Israel by lot. And that's the part that they would receive. And there is a word that appears in the New Testament over and over again. And it has to do with the land, and it has to do with receiving a part of the land. Anybody know what the word is? Inheritance. Inheritance. Absolutely. Inheritance. Did you know that you as a child of God have an inheritance? Amen. And it is the real land. It's also translated in some translations, lot or portion. And so each of the twelve tribes got a section of the land and they marked it off so there would be no wars. But every part of the land was rich. One tribe got a part and they said, we got the streams, the bubbling streams. And another tribe said, we got the gold in our part of the land. And another tribe said, well, we have the iron and the copper in our part of the land. And another tribe said, well, we got the olive oil and the honey. Brothers and sisters, we have a rich Christ, and there is no poor part of this land. That's right. There's no part that is poor. In the Psalms, I want to read Psalm 16. It says this, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful portion. He's talking about the land. Brothers and sisters, each one of you has received this all-sufficient Christ. And surely you and I have received a delightful portion. We have been given the all-sufficient land. And I guess really the chief lesson here where we'll begin is this. But the land teaches us that whatever need we have, whatever need we have as God's people, there is one who is all-sufficient to meet every, every need. Some of you in this room have, uh, you have suffered poor health. Some of you will suffer poor health. Some of you in here are suffering and if you're not now, you may in the future suffer financial instability. You get hit with some unknown thing and it wipes out your finances. Or you get fired from a job unjustly. Or nothing you can do about it. Next day you're at work. 
or betrayal. Some of you have suffered loneliness for quite some time. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a Christ that is all-sufficient that we can lay hold of, not just preach about, not just talk about, but a Christ that we can lay hold of, and He is the Christ of betrayal. He's the Christ of financial instability. He's the Christ of poor health. Jesus Christ is sufficient for every need. And oh, all your spiritual needs as well. But brothers and sisters, you will die of thirst. And you'll die of starvation. If you do not learn how to turn to Him and partake of Him in whatever need you have. And take Him as the fulfillment of that need. And this is what the land teaches us. This is what the land shows us. Is that we have an inexhaustible Christ who is all sufficient for every need we have. But here's the greatest mistake we have made as Christians. This is the greatest mistake. You and I believe. I don't believe this. I used to believe it. But we believe that in our adventure with Christ, we, I, you, can live the Christian life. And you can lay hold of this inexhaustible Christ and this all-sufficient Christ by yourself. And here's the point we have missed. The land, the land of Canaan was not given any individual. It was given to a people. Plural. It was given to God's people. It was given to God's people together. It was given to the people of God as a body of believers, as a body of God's people to possess the land, to lay hold of the land, to inherit the land, to mine the land, to dig the land, to till the land, and to receive its riches, and to enjoy the land. It was given to our people. Amen. And here's the problem. We've heard that Jesus Christ meets all our needs. Well, that sounds great. But it wasn't given to you as an individual Christian. It was given to the people of God. And that's not all. There was something that God wanted to be built on the land. Now we're going to look at that tomorrow night. It is by possessing Him as the land and enjoying Him and partaking of Him and laying hold of Him and mining Him and digging Him and receiving from Him as the land that the church is built and that the church grows up. Because something was to come out of that land. Something was to emerge out of that land and be built on that land. That's what the product of the land was. It was to produce something. So we begin with Jesus Christ. And we are going to look at His all-sufficiency this weekend. And tomorrow morning we're going to take a look at what's in that land. We're going to walk into that land behind Joshua and we're going to take a look at all of its riches.
it's exciting to see what's in that land because it's a shadow. It's a picture of He who lives in you and He in whom you are in. And we're going to see in the New Testament, Paul had this in his mind when he wrote the Christians. Over and over again, he's talking about the land. But we miss it because we read the Old Testament not as a shadow, but as a history. But as a shadow of the real Christ. I'm going to ask you all to do something before you go to bed tonight. It's real simple. Before you uh, drift off to sleep and go into your coma, I want you to consider... Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient land that God's people were to live off of. Just consider that thought. And there may be some thoughts that come with that. But think about that. It's very simple. Lord Jesus, you have been presented to me as an all-sufficient land that your people in the Old Testament were to live off of. Think about that a little bit.